the second part of Chapter 7 of The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. Bod had stores of food, the kind that lasted, cached in the crypt, and more in some of the chillier tombs and vaults and mausoleums. Silas had made sure of that. He had enough food to keep him going for a couple of months. Unless Silas or Miss Lupusie was there, he simply would not leave the graveyard. He missed the world beyond the graveyard gates, but he knew it was not safe out there. Not yet. The graveyard, though, was his world and his domain, and he was proud of it and loved it as only a fourteen-year-old boy can love anything. And yet, in the graveyard, no one ever changed. The little children Bod had played with when he was small were still little children. Fortinbras Bartleby, who had once been his best friend, was now four or five years younger than Bod was, and they had less to talk about each time they saw each other. Thackeray Porringer was Bod's height and age and seemed to be in much better temper with him. He would walk with Bod in the evenings and tell stories of unfortunate things that had happened to his friends. Normally the stories would end in the friends being hanged until they were dead for no offense of theirs and by mistake, although sometimes they were simply transported to the American colonies and they didn't have to be hanged unless they came back. Liza Hemstock, who had been Bod's friend for the last six years, was different in another way. She was less likely to be there for him when Bod went down to the nettle patch to see her, and on the rare occasions when she was, she would be short-tempered, argumentative, and often downright rude. Bod talked to Mr. Owens about this, and after a few moments' reflections, his father said, "'It's just women, I reckon. She liked you as a boy. Probably isn't sure who you are now. You're a young man. I used to play with one little girl down by the duck pond every day until she turned about your age.' And then she threw an apple at my head, and did not say another word to me until I was seventeen. Mrs. Owens sniffed. It was a pear I threw, she said tartly, and I was talking to you again soon enough, for we danced a measure at your cousin Ned's wedding, and that was but two days after your sixteenth birthday. Mr. Owens said, Of course, you are right, my dear, he winked at Bod, to tell him that it was none of it serious, and then he mouthed, Seventeen, to show that really it was. Bod had allowed himself no friends among the living. That way he had realized back during his short-lived school days lay only trouble. Still, he had remembered Scarlet, had missed her for years after she went away, had long ago faced the fact that he would never see her again. And now she had been here in his graveyard, and he had not known her. He was wandering deeper into the tangle of ivy and trees that made the graveyard's northwest quadrant so dangerous. Signs advised visitors to keep out, but the signs were not needed. It was uninviting and creepy once you were past the ivy tangle that marked the end of the Egyptian walk and the black doors and the mock Egyptian walls that led to people's final resting places. In the northwest, nature had been reclaiming the graveyard for almost a hundred years, and the stones were tipped over, graves were forgotten or simply lost beneath the green ivy, and the leaf fall of fifty years. Paths were lost and impassable. Bod walked with care. He knew the area well, and he knew how dangerous it could be. When Bod was nine, he had been exploring in just this part of the world when the soil had given way beneath him, tumbling him into a hole almost twenty feet down. The grave had been dug deep to accommodate many coffins, but there was no headstone and only one coffin, down at the bottom, containing a rather excitable medical and gentleman named Carstairs, who seemed thrilled by Bod's rival and insisted on examining Bod's wrist, which Bod had twisted in the tumble, grabbing onto a root, before he could be persuaded to go and fetch help. 
Bod was making his way through the northwest quadrant, a sludge of fallen leaves, a tangle of ivy where the foxes made their homes, and fallen angels stared up blindly because he had an urge to walk to talk to the poet. Nehemiah Trot was the poet's name, and his gravestone beneath the greenery read, Here lies the mortal remains of Nehemiah Trot, poet, 1741-1774. to Swans sing before they die. Bod said, Master Trot, might I ask you for advice? Nehemiah Trot beamed wanly. Wanly? Of course, brave boy, the advice of poets is the cordiality of kings. How may I smear unction on your, uh, no, not unction. How may I give balm to your pain? I'm not actually in pain. I just, well, there's a girl I used to know. And I wasn't sure if I should find her and talk to her or if I should just forget about it. Nehemiah Trot drew himself up to his full height, which was less than Bod's, raised both hands to his chest excitedly, and said, "Oh, you must go to her and implore her. You must call her your Terpiscor, Terpiscori, or your Echo, your Climtonestra. You must write poems for her, mighty odes. I shall help you write them, and thus, and, and only thus, shall you win your true love's heart. I don't actually need to win her heart. She's not my true love, said Bod. Just someone I'd like to talk to. Of all the organs, said Nehemiah Trot, the tongue is the most remarkable, for we use it both to taste our sweet wine and bitter poison. Thus also do we utter words both sweet and sour with the same tongue. Go to her, talk to her. I shouldn't. You should, sir, you must. I shall write about it when the battle's lost and won. But if I unfade for one person, it makes it easier for other people to see. Nehemiah Trot said, Ah, list to me, young Leander, young hero, young Alexander, if you dare nothing. When the world, when the day is over, nothing is all that you have gained. Mm, good point. Bod was pleased with himself, and glad he had thought of asking the poet for advice. Really, he thought. If you couldn't trust a poet to offer sensible advice, who could you trust? Which reminded him. Mr. Trot, said Bod, tell me about revenge. Dish best served cold, said Nehemiah Trot. Do not take revenge in the heat of the moment. Instead, wait until the hour is propitious. There was a Grub Street hack named O'Leary, an Irishman, I should add, who had the nerve, the confounded cheek, to write of my first slim volume of poems, a nosegay of beauty assembled for gentlemen of quality, that it was inferior doggerel of no worth whatsoever, and that the paper it was written on would have been better used as... No, I cannot say. Let us simply say that it was a most vulgar statement. But you got your revenge on him? asked Bod, curious. On him and on his entire pestilent breed. Oh, I had my revenge, Master Owens, and it was a terrible one. I wrote and had published a letter which I nailed to the doors at the public houses in London, where such low scribbling folk were one to re want to frequent. And I explained, given the fragility of the genius poetical, I would henceforth write not for them, but only for myself and posterity and that I should, as long as I lived, publish no more poems for them. 
Thus I left instructions that upon my death my poems were to be buried with me, unpublished, and that only when posterity realized my genius, realized that hundreds of my verses had been lost, lost, only then was my coffin to be disinterred, only then could my poems be removed from my cold, dead hand, to finally be published to the approbation and delight of all. It is a terrible thing to be ahead of your time. And after you died, they dug you up and they printed your poems? No, not yet. But there is still plenty of time. Posterity is vast. So that was your revenge? Indeed, and a mightily powerful and cunning one at that. Yes, said Bard, unconvinced. Best served cold, said Nehemiah Trot proudly. Bard left the northwest of the graveyard, returned through the Egyptian walk to the more orderly paths and untangled ways, and as the dusk fell, he wandered back towards the old chapel, not because he hoped Silas had returned from his travels, but because he had spent his life visiting the chapel at dusk, and it felt good to have a rhythm. And anyway, he was hungry. Bod slipped through the crypt door, down into the crypt. He moved a cardboard box filled with curl curled and damp parlish parish papers and took out a carton of orange juice an apple a box of breadsticks and a block of cheese and he ate while pondering how and whether he would seek out scarlet he would dream walk perhaps since that was how she had come to him he headed outside was on his way to sit on the gray wooden bench when he saw something and he hesitated there was someone already there sitting on his bench she was reading a magazine bod faded even more became a part of the graveyard no more important than a shadow or a twig. But she looked up. She looked straight at him, and she said, Bod, is that you? He said nothing. Then he said, Why can you see me? I almost couldn't. At first I thought you were a shadow or something, but you looked like you did in my dream. You sort of came into focus. He walked over to the bench. He said, Can you actually read that? Isn't it too dark for you? Scarlet closed the magazine. She said, It's odd. You'd think it would be too dark, but I could read it fine. No problem. Are you... He trailed off, uncertain of what he had wanted to ask her. Are you... here on your own? She nodded. I helped Mr. Frost do some grave rubbings after school, and then I told him I wanted to sit and think here for a bit. When I'm done here, I promise to go and have a cup of tea with him, and he'll run me home. He didn't even ask why, just said he loves sitting in graveyards, too and that he thinks they can be the most peaceful places in the world. Then she said, Can I hug you? Do, do you want to? said Bod. Yes. Well then, he thought for a moment, I don't mind if you do. My hands won't go through you or anything. You're really there. You won't go through me, he told her, and she threw her arms around him and squeezed him so tightly he could hardly breathe. He said, That hurts. Scarlet let go. Sorry. No, it, it was nice. I, I mean, you just squeezed more than I was expecting. I just wanted to know if you were real. All these years I thought you were just something in my head, and then I sort of forgot about you. But I didn't make you up, and you're back. You're in my head, and you're in the world, too. Bod smiled. He said, you used to wear a sort of coat. It was orange, and whenever I saw that particular color orange, I, I'd think of you. I don't suppose you still have the coat. No, said sh she said. Not for a long time. It'd be a wee bit too small for me now. Yes, said Bod, uh, of course. 
I should go home, said Scarlet. I thought I could come up on the weekend, though. And then, seeing the expression on Bod's face, she said, Today's Wednesday. Oh, I'd like that. She turned to go. Then she said, How will I find you next time? Bod said, I'll find you. Don't worry. Just be on your own and I'll find you. She nodded and was gone. Bod walked back into the graveyard and up the hill until he reached the Frobisher mausoleum. He did not enter it. He climbed up the side of the building, using the thick ivy root as a foothold, and he pulled himself up onto the stone roof where he sat and thought, looking out at the world of moving things beyond the graveyard, and he remembered the way that Scarlet had held him and how he safe he had felt, if only for a moment, and how fine it would be to walk safely in the lands beyond the graveyard, and how good it was to be master of his own small world. Scarlet said that she didn't want a cup of tea, thank you, or a chocolate biscuit. Mr. Frost was concerned. Honestly, he told her, you look like you've seen a ghost. Well, a graveyard, not a bad place to see one, if you were going to, um... I had an aunt once who claimed her parrot was haunted. She was a scarlet macaw, the parrot. The aunt was an architect, never knew the details. I'm fine, said Scarlet. It was just a long day. I'll give you a lift home, then. Any idea what this says? Been puzzling over it for a half an hour. He indicated a grave rubbing on the little table, held flat by a jam jar in each corner. Is that named Gladstone, do you think? It could be a relative of the Prime Minister, but I can't make out anything else. Afraid not, said Scarlet. But I'll take another look when I come out on Saturday. Is your mother likely to put in an appearance? She said she'd drop me off here in the morning. Then she has to go and get groceries for our dinner. She's cooking a roast chicken. Uh, do you think, asked Mr. Frost, hopefully, there are likely to be roast potatoes? I expect so, yes. Mr. Frost looked delighted. Then he said, I, I wouldn't want to put her out of her way. I, I mean, she's loving it, said Scarlet, truthfully. Thank you for giving me a lift home. More than welcome, said Mr. Frost. They walked together down the steps in Mr. Frost's high, narrow house to the little entrance hall at the bottom of the stairs. In Krakow, on Walwell Hill, there are caves called the Dragon's Den, named after a long, dead dragon. These are the caves that the tourists know about. There are caves beneath those caves that the tourists do not know and do not ever get to visit. They go down a long way and they are inhabited. Silas went first followed by the gray hugeness of Miss Lupusu, padding quietly on four feet just behind him. Behind them was Kandar, a bandage-wrapped Assyrian mummy with powerful eagle wings and eyes like rubies, who was carrying a small pig. There had, unfortunately, there had originally been four of them, but they had lost Harun in a cave far above when the Ilfrit, as naturally overconfident as are all of its race, had stepped into a space bounded by three polished bronze mirrors, and had been swallowed up in a blaze of bronze light. In moments, the Ifrit could only be seen in the mirrors and no longer in reality. The mirrors, his fire... In the mirrors, his fiery eyes were wide open, and his mouth was moving as if he were shouting at them to leave and beware. And then he faded and was lost to them. Silas, who had no problems with mirrors, had covered one of them with his coat, rendering the trap useless. So, said Silas... Now there are only three of us. And a pig, said Kandar. Why? asked Miss Lupusu, with a wolf tongue through wolf teeth. Why the pig? It's lucky, said Kandar. 
Miss Lupusu growled, unconvinced. Did Haroon have a pig? asked Kandar simply. Hush, said Silas. They are coming. From the sound of it, there are many of them. Let them come, whispered Kandar. Miss Lupusu's hackles were rising. She said nothing, but she was ready for them. And it was only by an effort of will that she did not throw back her head and howl. It's beautiful up this way, said Scarlet. Yes, said Bod. So your family were all killed, said Scarlet. Does anyone know who did it? N no, not that I know. My guardian only says that the man who did it is still alive, and that he'll tell me the rest of what he knows one day. One day? When I'm ready. What's he scared of? That you'd strap on your gun and ride out to wreak vengeance on the man who killed your family? Bod looked at her seriously. Well, obviously, he said. Not a gun, though. But yes, something like that. You're joking. Bod said nothing. His lips were tight-pressed together. He shook his head. Then he said, I'm not joking. It was a bright and sunny Saturday morning. They were just past the entrance to the Egyptian walk, out of the direct sunlight, under the pines and the sprawling monkey puzzle tree. Your guardian, is he a dead person too? Bod said, I don't talk about him. Scarlet looked hurt. Not even to me. Not even to you. Well, she said, be like that, Bod said. Look, I I'm sorry, I didn't mean, just as Scarlet said, I promised Mr. Frost I wouldn't be too long. I'd better be getting back. Right, said Bod, worried he had offended her, unsure of what he could say to make anything better. He watched Scarlet head off on the winding path back to the chapel. A familiar female voice said with derision, Look at her, Miss High and Mighty. But there was no one to be seen. Bod, feeling awkward, walked back to the Egyptian walk. Miss Lilibet and Miss Violet had let him store a cardboard box filled with old paperback books in their vault, and he wanted to find something to read. Scarlet helped Mr. Frost with his grave rubbings until midday, when they stopped for lunch. He offered to buy her fish and chips as a thank you, and they walked down to the fish and chip shop at the bottom of the road, and as they walked back up the hill, they ate their steaming fish and chips, drenched in vinegar and glittering with salt, out of paper bags. Scarlet said, If you wanted to find out about a murder, where would you look? I already tried the internet. Um, depends. What kind of murder are we talking about? Something local, I think. About thirteen or fourteen years ago. A family was killed around here. What? said Mr. Frost. This really happened? Oh, yes. Are you all right? Not really. A bit too, well... A bit of a wimp, really. Things like that, I mean, local true crime. You don't like to think about it. Things like that, happening here. Not something I'd expect a girl of your age to be interested in. It's not actually for me, admitted Scarlet. It's for a friend. Mr. Frost finished off the last of his fried cod. Well, the library, I suppose. It's not on the internet. It'll be in their newspaper files, maybe. What set you off after this? Oh, Scarlet wanted to lie as little as possible. She said, A boy I know. He was asking about it. Definitely the library, said Mr. Frost. Murder. Ugh, gives me the shivers. Me too, said Scarlet. A bit. Then hopefully, Could you maybe possibly drop me off at the library this afternoon? Mr. Frost bit a large chip in half, chewed it, and looked at the rest of the chip, disappointed. They get cold so fast, don't they, chips? 
One minute you're burning your mouth on them, the next you're wondering how they cool off so quickly. I'm sorry, said Scarlet. I shouldn't be asking for rides everywhere. Oh, not, not at all, said Mr. Frost. Just wondering how best to organize this afternoon, and whether or not your mother likes chocolates. Bottle of wine or, or chocolates? I'm not really sure. Both, maybe? I can make my own way home from the library, said Scarlet. And she loves chocolates. So do I. Chocolates it is, then, said Mr. Frost, relieved. They had reached the middle of the row of high terraced houses on the hill, and the little green mini parked outside. Get in. I'll run you over to the library. The library was a square building, all brick and stone, dating back to the beginning of the last century. Scarlet looked around and then went up to the desk. The woman said, Yes? Scarlet said, I wanted to see some old newspaper clippings. "'Is it for school?' said the woman. "'It's it's local history,' said Scarlet, nodding, proud that she hadn't actually lied. "'We've got the local paper on microfiche,' said the woman. She was large and had silver hoops in her ears. Scarlet could feel her heart pounding in her chest. She was certain she looked guilty or suspicious, but the woman led her into a room with boxes that looked like computer screens.' and showed her how to use them to project a page of the newspaper at a time onto the screen. "'One day we'll have it all be digitized,' said the woman. "'Now what dates are you after?' "'About thirteen or fourteen years ago,' said Scarlet. "'I can't be more specific than that. I'll know it when I see it.' The woman gave Scarlet a small box with five years' worth of newspapers on microfilm in it. "'Go wild,' she said." Scarlet assumed that the murder of the family would have been front-page news, but instead, when she eventually found it, it was almost buried on page five. It had happened in October, thirteen years earlier. There was no color in the article, no description, just an understated list of events. Architect Ronald Dorian, 36, his wife Carlotta, 34, a publisher, and their daughter Misty, 7, were found dead at 33 Dunstan Road. Foul play is suspected— a police spokesman said that it was too early to comment at this stage in their investigations, but that significant leads are being followed. There was no mention of how the family died, and nothing said about a missing baby. In the weeks that followed, there was no follow-up, and the police did not ever comment, not that Scarlet could see. But that was it. She was certain. 33 Dunstan Road. She knew the house. She had been in there. She returned the box of microfilm to the front desk, thanked the librarian, and walked home in the April sunshine. Her mother was in the kitchen cooking, not entirely successfully, judging from the smell of burnt bottom of the saucepan that filled most of the flat. Scarlet retreated to her bedroom and opened the windows wide to let the burnt smell out. Then she sat on her bed and made a phone call. Hello, Mr. Frost? Scarlet, everything's still all right for this evening. How's your mother? Oh, it's all under control, said Scarlet which was what her mother had said when she had asked. Um, Mr. Frost, how long have you lived at your house? How long? Oh, about, well, uh, four months now. How did you find it? Estate agent's window. It was empty and I could afford it. Well, more or less. <laughs> well, I uh, wanted something within walking distance of the graveyard, and this was perfect. Mr. Frost, Scarlet wondered how to say it, and then she just said it. About thirteen years ago, three people were murdered in your house, the Dorian family. There was silence at the other end of the phone. Mr. Frost, are you there? Um, still here, Scarlet. Oh, sorry, not the sort of thing you expect to hear. 
It's an old house. I mean, you expect things to happen a long time ago, but not... Well, what happened? Scarlet wondered how much she could tell him. She said, There was a little piece on it in an old newspaper. It only gave the address and nothing else. I don't know how they died or anything. Well, Mr. Frost sounded more intrigued by the news than Scarlet could have expected. This, young Scarlet, is where we local historians come into our own. Leave it with me. I'll find out everything I can and report back. Thank you, said Scarlet, relieved. Um, I assume this phone call is because of Nuna thought there were murders going on in my home, even thirteen-year-old ones. You'd never be allowed to see me or the graveyard again, so suppose I won't mention it unless you do? Thank you, Mr. Frost. See you at seven. With chocolates. Dinner was remarkably pleasant. The burnt smell had gone from the kitchen. The chicken was good. The salad was better. The roast potatoes were too crispy, but a delighted Mr. Frost had proclaimed that this was precisely the way he liked them, and had taken a second helping. The flowers were popular. The chocolates, which had which they had for desserts, were perfect, and Mr. Frost sat and talked, then watched television with them until about 10 p.m., when he said that he needed to get home. "'Time tied in historical research, wait for no man,' he said. He shook Nuna's hand with enthusiasm, winked at Scarlet conspiratorially, and was out the door. Scarlet tried to find Bod in her dreams that night. She thought of him as she went to sleep, imagined herself walking the graveyard looking for him. But when she did dream, it was about the wandering, it was around the wandering Glasgow City Center with her friends from her old school. They were hunting for a specific street, but all they found was a succession of dead ends, one after another.